Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, we review the medical literature, and we review case studies. Today's show topic is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. What is it? Why should we care? What does it have to do with our brain function? My guest today is Dr. Jill Carnahan. She earned her undergraduate degree from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana in 1998 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Bioengineering. She graduated with honors from Loyola University, Strick School of Medicine in 2003. She completed her family practice residency from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in 2006. Dr. Carnahan is board certified in family medicine and integrative holistic medicine. She's a frequent lecturer to physicians who are being trained in different aspects of integrative and functional medicine. And that's where I, I mean, I've seen Dr. Carnahan on the internet, but I actually listened to her talk at the SERS conference, Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome Conference, the Mole Conference in Irvine earlier this year. And then I was fortunate enough to sit right beside her at Dr. Dale Bredesen's conference on reversing Alzheimer's disease and got to pick her brain while she was probably trying to listen or look up literature and, and do literature searches <laughs> uh, during the lecture. So, Dr. Carnahan, thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Kirk. I'm delighted to be here with you. So, you got a great story. So, before we get into the topic of, you know, mold, SIRS, and, and cognitive decline, tell us about your educational background and your story of why you got into this medicine in the first place. You bet. I always knew I wanted to go to root cause and, and use food and nutrition. Didn't really know how I was going to do that and ended up getting accepted into allopathic MD medical school. And I really felt at that point the best way to change the system, which I didn't 100% agree with, was to actually become part of it and change it from the inside out. So that's how I got into allopathic medicine and never looked back. During my uh, medical school, I was diagnosed with aggressive cancer, breast cancer, at 25 years old. So all of a sudden, I put into play integrative and functional medicine. I did get treated with conventional chemotherapy and radiation, but I feel like my recovery over the past six 16 years is all credited to functional and integrated medicine with food at the base. Um, shortly after my diagnosis of breast cancer, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and uh, both of those diseases, I'm completely free of symptoms and disease here 16 years later. So I'm kind of a living testimony to the power of functional medicine. So then, uh, how did you get involved with this whole, you know, biotoxin illness, mold yes. illness? Didn't you have a personal experience Yes, yeah, so correctly. the story continues. So I was doing fine until doing really well health wise until 2014. I was in a medical office, and um, suddenly I started becoming short of breath. I started. I was running five k's, you know, four or five times a week, and all of a sudden I couldn't run a quarter mile without getting short of breath and and having trouble breathing, having numbness in my limbs, and uh, fatigue. I would walk out of my office at the end of end of the day with red uh, bloodshot eyes, looked like I had just had a bunch of alcohol or something, which I had not, and um, all these strange symptoms. The other thing I noticed is my immune system was crashing. When I say crashing, I would get all kinds of skin infections and fungal infections and pneumonias and things that normally um, a healthy you know person should not get. So I knew there was something going on. And when you think about respiratory issues and immune issues, I knew um, that mold could be a culprit. I was in denial, and I actually understand when patients are afraid to leave their house or even test their house because I think I was in a place of kind of denial that this could actually be the problem for several months. 
finally, when I got sick enough, um, I first tested um, urine for mycotoxins, which I don't think is the best test out there, but for me, that's where I started. And then eventually, serum markers that we'll talk about today found out there was a lot of inflammation, a lot of signs that pointed to mold. So I had an inspector come to my medical office, and we found stachybotrys, massive issues in the basement just below my office suite. And so as soon as I found that out, that was the December of 2014. It was the day after Christmas. I literally never set foot in my office again. I sold everything, got rid of my books, and started over in 2015. So there's, there's a load of questions in there. Um, so... Let me ask you, how long were you in this building before you started? You were in good health when you came into the building, correct? And yes. then how long yes. did it take? Because obviously this mold was probably there since the beginning. How long did it take before you just started really feeling things happening? Well, um, so I was there two and a half years, and it was probably maybe 18 months or a little longer into it till I started feeling ill. Um, so I was there about a, a year with starting to have escalating symptoms. And one thing that really um, exacerbated everything in Boulder was there was a flood in 2013, a massive, you know, of epidemic proportions. The whole entire town flooded, um, and our office was not underwater, but there was certainly water in the basement where we found the mold. So I think what probably was a little bit of an issue before became a massive issue after the flood. So if you think about timeline, it was summer of 2013 where there was flood and I was sick as a dog um, in, in the December of 2014, so a year and a half later, a year and a few months later. Um, and I see that pretty frequently where someone gets an exposure. And in hindsight, this is actually real relevant to your listeners because what happens is those are the genetic canaries, meaning that we have the genetics that make us susceptible to these mold toxins and we have a hard time clearing them from our bodies, um, we have probably had other exposures. And if I look back, I had a home in Illinois that probably had mold. In my childhood, I grew up in an old farmhouse. So there's probably multiple things that set me up for getting that sick at this time. Let's just, because uh, this is so practical, when you, you did the urinary mycotoxins first, and that's a, a debatable test to do, tell me how you tested your office. How did, this is the tough part for me, to convince a patient to do this, and tell me the steps that you did. You bet, and I think you're right. This is so critical because I have this discussion every single day with patients. So the first thing, now in hindsight, this is what I think about urinary mycotoxins. At the time, I didn't know a whole lot about sears or mold toxicity. So I thought, okay, let's check for mold in the urine. That makes sense. And I have a lot of patients who ask me about that. In my case, it was highly positive for trichosethane, which is a, a type of mycotoxin that's typically found with the mold we found, which is stachybotry, sometimes ketomium, some of the real toxic molds. So I did know very quickly that there was an issue in my body of exposure to mold. What I've seen in the, in the time since, though, is there's been several of my most sick patients that I was absolutely convinced had a mold exposure in their house or office. I did urinary mycotoxin testing, and it came back completely negative. And before I understood the testing and what I'm going to tell you in just a moment, I actually thought, okay, they don't have mold issues, and I was wrong. And later on, we found that they did, and I could have been treating them for a lot of months sooner. So here's the deal. When a patient is a very poor detoxifier, um, those are the ones that get the most sick. They cannot detox at all, and they're not excreting these toxins in the urine. So those are your ones that you might have a false negative, and you might be misled to not treat them when actually they're your sickest, most exposed patients. So what I do now is if I use urinary mycotoxins, I always pre-treat with five days of glutathione or sauna or both, and I'm getting better results. Um, then after I found the urinary mycotoxins, I went ahead and did the Sears labs 
and that was in the beginning when I had just gotten a hold of Shoemaker's data, and right away I had a C4A, which is a, usually a marker of acute exposure that was off the charts high. My TGF-beta, which is also a marker, that one can stay up a little longer even after exposure, but that was also extraordinarily high. So I knew this inflammatory process was going on in my body once I checked the blood. And then you ask about testing the office, and this is also such a conundrum because you and I both see patients where we basically are, are quite certain there's an exposure, and to convince them um, to test is it can be really difficult. And what is hard to get across to them is if you and I see the labs that look like there's an inflammatory response and we're quite convinced that's happening, we don't know for sure what the trigger is or where it's at, but we see with the lab work that this process, this inflammation is going on in the body, it's our job to convince them to try to figure out what the root cause and if it's their home or their office. So I frequently do start with an ERMI. So at mycometrics.com, you can order either Hertzme or Ermi. I always like the Ermi because it gives more species of molds. And you can actually calculate Hertzme is just a score based on the top five molds that have human effects of illness. So you can take an Ermi test and calculate a Hertzme score. The Hertzme score is actually most relevant to um, illness or wellness because we know 99% of people who have a score of greater than 15 on Hertzme will not get well in that environment. And if their score is less than 11, they're uh, very, very likely to be in a safe environment. But the other trick is you and I both know that sometimes the dust sampling doesn't show a big issue. And if I'm convinced based on the lab work that there is an issue, we will often keep testing until we find the problem. And that could take two, three, four inspectors. It could take multiple ERMI tests. This can be a very complicated process because sometimes the mold is hidden and um, it's a big problem, but it's hard to find. All right, so, so let me interject there a second. So in your, the first step, is to den of, I mean, see where the exposure is. Do you always have a person, a professional, come in and do it, or do you ever let the patient do it themselves? Because this is another conundrum, because that's extra money to have the person come in. So, yeah, I always take into account where their financial status is and what they can afford, but that's, this is obviously the life and health. I prefer to have an inspector because there's things that they, if they have a good person, they can see problems or issues that a dust sample or the patient might not know. And so you found people that, that you trust that consistently kind of produce well and the patients are satisfied? Well, as you know from the biggest <laughs> conference this year, that is the continual problem for all of us. Um, I, had a, I had a great person that turned out to be not reliable. Um, I do have a couple of other people I've used. I would say I still don't have one person that I absolutely 100% okay. trust. How All about right. you, Kirk? Have you well, that's, the, that's the challenge. I was on with one on the phone yeah. the other day. I mean, you know, when you're going to tell your patient, I mean, it's one thing to spend a little money on a lab test or a lot of money on a lab test. It's another thing to have something that might affect their home and, and everything else. So I haven't. I'm getting closer. Let me put it that way. But it's a work. It's a work yeah. in progress. So let me go to the second point. So SIRS is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. You want to give a little overview of that, and then I want to know: Do you do every single shoemaker test, like all ten or so of them, to get the the, the parameters, or do you have four or five special ones? So first, what is SIRS? You bet. Okay. So SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, um, is basically the immune response to a toxin it can't get rid of. So the first criteria is you have to have the genetic HLA-type susceptibility, and there's 24% of the population that is susceptible to this, and what happens is this exogenous toxin starts to trigger an inflammatory cascade in the body, and the body's not able to adequately get rid of that toxin, so that cascade runs rampant and creates internal damage, but the damage is actually happening based on the body's own 
immune response. So it's actually not the toxin. The toxin can have its own side effects, but this inflammatory response is the body's own um, out of control uh, trying to eradicate that toxin that causes the damage. And we can uh, test for this based on the genetics the lab markers, and then um, some things like NeuroQuant and, and other tests. As far as what I test, I typically, depending on the patient's insurance, um, worst-case scenario, if I can only get a few, Life Extension offers a mold Sears panel that offers the top five. It's MSH, TGF-beta, MMP9, ADH, and osmolality. And that cash price is around $400, which is quite a bargain compared to LabCorp prices. So if someone can't afford the full panel, I'll have them do that at the very least. And at least I have TGF beta. And then, of course, the other ones. I do like to run the whole panel. So whenever I'm able with patients' insurances, I do run all the Shoemaker labs, at least the initial. And then the ones I like to follow are um, C4A, TGF beta, MSH, MMP9, and VEGF. Those are my most frequently followed. And one other thing you ask about inspection, I use C4A as a little bit of a marker for exposure because typically that will go down a couple weeks after the patient is out of exposure. Now, that's not 100% valid, but if we're all trying to figure out do they still have an exposure, check C4A because if it's sky high, they probably still have an exposure. Well, so here's a <laughs> – so one of the first Alzheimer's patients I had happened to be coming over from Pennsylvania to be with their daughters, and they didn't want her to go back because of cognitive decline. And so her C4A, I just happened to do it on the back end of the testing, was 12,000. So oh. then she goes – no, check this out, though. So this makes me a little nervous. So I, I'm I'm doing the other – Bredesen type stuff, and she they come back from Pennsylvania as a visit, and when she comes back, as soon as she comes back, her C four A was like in uh, six or seven hundred. So I'm confused. So I mean, I and I've been following C four A has been my kind of bread and butter test to get people kind of open yeah. to this. Um, right. So that would suggest that the exposure is more here than over there, I guess. I don't know. I mean, uh, so. Well, I'll tell you, Kirk, I had a patient that had two homes, one in Illinois, one in Florida. It, it was classic Sears, only he presented with this stabbing ice pick migraines. It wasn't the rest of the symptoms. It was just the stab, which is part of the syndrome, but it was for him very particular. I have done um, C4As both places, all of us. I'm convinced Illinois is the exposure, but we still can't find the issue. So this is actually very common for practitioners, um, at least for me, where th there is not always clear-cut answers. And I try to keep going until I get an answer, but it, this is tough stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it is tough stuff. Okay, so let's talk about, I mean, I got into this the back-end way. The back-end way was... Um, that I went to Bredesen's conference, and when he said 10 to 20% of people might have inhalant uh, Alzheimer's related to biotoxins or mold, then I had to learn this stuff that I didn't want to learn three years ago, <laughs> watching my other yeah. colleague do this. So um, let's talk about, let's focus on neurocognitive decline. I think we have assessment down a little bit, and, and you know, you got to look at the home environment. Now, how do you change this... Um, how did you become aware of the neurologic component to this, I guess, would be a place to start? With uh, Sears specifically? Yeah, you with mean? Sears, yeah. 
So I actually came in the opposite direction where I was treating Sears um, because of my own experience. I started uh, seeing, you know how it is when you go through something, you see it with different eyes and you start to see this in patients. And because of the floods in Boulder, we've had a huge amount of people who've had water damage to their homes. So I started with that. But what I'm seeing and continue to see is younger people uh, in their 50s and 60s with massive cognitive decline. They can't function at work. So I would be so puzzled because it would be so severe. Like you said, it would almost be an early dementia picture. And then I realized Bredesen was seeing the same. When his paper came out showing the reversal of that percentage that had Sears totally amazing and I and I saw that I see that in practice because we have these people who as you treat the Sears so I kind of came about it from the other way um, but I'm finding the same results as far as um, people can reverse the cognitive decline if it's an environmental exposure so if you saw someone with that came in first with neurocognitive decline whether it be an Alzheimer's or early dementia or whatever would you start off with now knowing what you know um, would you do a neuroquant and explain what that is to people, uh, MRI, or would you do the Sears battery of tests plus Bredesen? Because it gets overwhelming. I mean, it's all overwhelming. But <laughs> It does. And um, I just want to throw a plug. I have no association other than I'm helping to teach it. But there, we're going to do with IFM, Functional Medicine Institute, uh, an advanced clinical training for early Alzheimer's dementia with the Bredesen protocol in March. So keep your calendars for March 11th and 12th in uh, Huntington Beach, California. It's through IFM. So we're going to be teaching this. So I'm actually working on presentations for this very topic and this very question. Basically what we're doing, I'm actually doing the pardon lab uh, values, which is what your question was. We're tiering it so that you've all the basic CMP, CBC, homocysteine, insulin, um, all the hormones, toxic metals, all those baseline are kind of your first tier that everybody with dementia or early Alzheimer's gets. And then what you do is you get a great history. And if you start to get historical things like, oh, ever since I moved to this house in 2014, I was sick. Well, those are the kind of things that might trigger you to do a neuroquant or a Sears bat, uh, a panel. The Sears panel for patients who don't have insurance is incredibly expensive. So it is one of those like second or third tier unless it, you, know, you can order all the tests you want, which most patients we can't. Um, and I would say the same thing. If it's cognitive decline, I wouldn't always start with Sears but I would ask the questions, and if the questions led to a suspicion of an exposure, then I would go that direction. Other things is with Bredesen, you can, of course, classify them, and if they seem to be more the um, word finding is particularly interesting with Sears, more common, and then that early, like a 50-year-old executive who all of a sudden can't function, that's significant for something other than just a a decline in cognition due to age or APOE status. Yeah, I have... um well, a personal acquaintance, let's say, without giving out stuff in the mid-50s who um, couldn't catch, could find words. It's, um, someone who does a lot of calculations, and, and I started yeah. to notice it. And uh, anyway, it turned out she went to the, um, the local university, and they did, you know, work up and said you have early possible dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh-huh. And then later to find out that she had mold in the office. And I'm trying to convince them that you need to really clean house here so uh, that one sticks at, at home so tell about the neuroquant test how do you use that i interviewed dr hershenbein and uh he he likes that test he's a gastroenterologist functional medicine guy and um i want to know if you think it's of value or how you would use it 
You bet. So one thing when I first came across this about a year and a half ago is I thought, wow, this is so great because we have some data that shows there's certain abnormalities that are more associated with Lyme disease or, or infection and other ones that are more associated with sears or mold exposure. And so I started doing that on almost all my patients, and we happen to have great facilities in Denver and Boulder, so we have multiple options. It's very affordable. It's about $500 out of pocket, which is pretty low cost. So I would do a ton of them. What I found, though, is um, it is helpful to track. So over time, we can actually see reversal of hippocampal or um, caudate or putamen changes, which is exciting. But as far as the diagnostic criteria or helping me to actually um, change my plan, I didn't find it incredibly useful. So what I do find is a baseline and then two years later some improvement. That might be helpful. But as far as changing my clinical approach, it didn't really change my clinical approach. Um, and most of the patients I found were mold versus Lyme. It was, it was probably weighted like 80, 20% in the favor of mold exposure. So it is helpful. It's a pretty easy thing to do. And it shows what they do is they take the sections of the brain, they blow them up into a spherical shape, and they give the volume. So what you can do is compare the volume of the forebrain, the hippocampal, the amygdala, the caudate, to an average. And if that uh, shows atrophy in certain regions or hypertrophy, which is inflammation, you can uh, correlate that to a likely toxic exposure. So it's a very cool test. I do still find it useful, but I wouldn't say that I order it on every Sears patient. Okay, so let me ask you about another test then. That, all right, so I understand that if you have the genetics, the 25% of the population, you can't, you know, you're not good at getting detoxifying the mold. But that's an expensive test. And if you had all the other parameters off and the exposure, wouldn't you treat anyway the same way, whether you knew that was positive or not? And I, I'm balking. I'm dragging my feet on that. I, that's sure. the one because of money. And so, um, but you try and convince me otherwise why I should do it more often. <laughs> okay, you bet. Well, what I found is there's kind of uh, some interesting correlations. So first of all, 100% so far, Kirk, people that I suspect that have HLA type, I've been right 100% of the time. And that's not, that's not to toot my own horn, but that is just because the people we see that are sick usually. So you're right in the sense that so far every person I've tested that I suspected has had one of the 24% higher risk. There's not one person who hasn't been at risk. Um, so having said that, do I need to do the test? Well, what I like to see, though, is now I'm seeing different nuances based on the gene. So 4353 has a really interesting presentation of more chronic fatigue and depression. So they tend to present with mood disorders and really bad fatigue, especially with exposure. Um, the 11352B, they are obviously the ones that are more um, uh, at risk for Ehlers-Danlos or some of the um, joint issues and uh, collagen vascular types of things. And they tend to present with that TGF beta that goes off the charts and is very hard to, to get down. And they also are more prone to autoimmune disease. So I find some of these types are kind of interesting and helpful because they give a little bit more information. Um, one uh, pearl is you can get that test through Life Extension as well for under $400. That's better than 1500 Okay. So let's get into some treatment. So Shoemaker's very emphatic, at least it looks like it, from his, the, the way you do it. Remove the exposure, treat with cholestyramine. If you do the sinus culture and Marcan's positive, treat the sinuses, and then maybe down the road, VIP. When do, do you ever start treat? I asked you this <laughs> when I was sitting next to you. I said, "Do you ever start treating people before they've cleaned house, so to speak, uh, with their home environment or work environment?" Yes, 
<laughs> Short answer, yes. Okay. I feel like um, I love, love, love that Dr. Shoemaker has been so research-oriented and really done things stepwise so that he could gather data. But in clinical practice, I'm not as patient, and I want these patients to get well. And I sometimes don't have the 18 months it might take to go super slow. Yeah. So I often initiate. So number one, would you initiate a binder with them still exposed? Yes, you're bailing out a leaky boat. So it's going to not be as valuable as if you didn't have them in exposure. But there's a lot of cases where you can't get them out of exposure immediately or at all. So you have to do something. So yes, I use binders. And then sometimes I will uh, test and treat for Marcons at the same time. Tell me your bu- favorite binders. I mean, cholestyramine is the one that's said all the time, but do you have any pearls on its use and what are other binders? You bet. Um, so uh, because I deal with a lot of gut disorders and gut is usually affected by sears, I, I like cholestyramine, but uh, I would say maybe 25 to 30% of our patients can't tolerate it. It tends to cause constipation and bloating. Wellcall is a favorite. I really like Wellcall. It's not quite as effective, but it's very well tolerated. And just personally in my journey, I've never taken cholestyramine. I've taken Wellcall the whole time, and I've done phenomenally well. I'm completely you know, doing well from the sears. Um, so it is an effective binder. I almost always add clay and charcoal. So just like upgraded coconut charcoal or any of the charcoals that are out there um, are very effective. And then I really like Biobotanicals GI Detox, which has clay and charcoal combined. And I use both of those together along with whatever other binders. Um, what we know with binders is each of them have slightly different charge. So even if it's not doing mycotoxins, it may be pulling out uh, endotoxins in the gut or heavy metals or other toxins. And I think the combination of multiple binders gets your best detox. So Wellcall is, I for, I'm sorry, I forgot, Wellcall is, uh, what's in Wellcall? Um, uh, it's just, uh, that's the brand that doesn't come generic, so it's just, it's W-E-L-C-H-L-L. I think it's called uh, Colis, oh, what's it called? So, so uh, it is, is it, yeah. is it cholestyramine? In a, no, 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 it's, no, it's a not. tablet. It's, Right. No. And how that's dosed is 625 tablets, milligram tablets, and they're taken six a day. You can take them once a day. You can divide it three twice a day. And you don't have to be quite as far away. You can be an hour away from food or drink or supplement. So it's a little easier for patients to take than the cholestyramine. Okay. So you do the binders. What else are you doing at the same time of the binders? Have you, um, let's, let's say they're trying to clean up their home, but they're not out of the home yet or whatever. What else are you doing? Um, so I love sauna. Um, so if they have access to a sauna, we have sauna here at the office. Um, anything where they can start to uh, sweat and, and release those toxins. Um, of course, getting out of the situation, I'm a huge fan of air filters because the air quality is so uh, important. Um, and any of the good HEPAs that also have a VOC filter will work. Um, I like Austin Air. There's IQ Air. Um, Air Oasis has a little different technology. And for some people with really sensitive lungs, they might have a problem with the, the UV-generated um, filters. But I would say um, most of my patients who get an air filter immediately within 24 hours notice a difference. So I feel like that's a huge piece. So air filter, binder, sauna, um, clay charcoal, and then I'm usually treating the gut because the gut is always involved. All right, so, so let's, um, like, let's, what is, what's your bread and butter way to assess the gut? Okay, um, history is the cheapest, and I can get a pretty good amount of information just from history. Um, if they have lots of symptoms of SIBO, I may do a hydrogen methane breath test. Um, otherwise, a stool test would be kind of the standard. I find the stool test will check the colonic uh, microbiome, but it won't do a very good job of the small bowel. And so typically, I want to also do an organic acid test to assess the small bowel or the other parts of the bowel that aren't detectable on the 
colon. So something like um, Genova Nutraval or O&E, or I really like Great Plains Oat Test as well. Any of those organic acids will kind of show the burden of yeast or clostridia in the gut. Okay. And so you do the SIBO, you do uh, breath hydrogen, you do organic acids. I got that. Now, do yeah. you, you, do, you don't mind saying, do you do the Genova GI effects or is that something you do? Um, so I'll give you uh, your listeners a ton of pearls here because I've done this for 15 years. So GI effects I love. The, the advantages of that are um, DNA probes for all the different standard um, microbes, but DNA probes you have to pick. So there's still stuff that we don't know about that's not included. I find it's less effective for parasites and less effective for candida. Um, doctor's data is really good as well. And sometimes if I don't get what I'm looking for on GI effects, I'll use doctor's data. Those to me are the first two. They're pretty well covered, pretty affordable, and they're a great screen. If I'm really looking for parasites or viruses in the gut or something else, I will do something like um, there's a, a lab called Parasitology Inc. that all they test for is parasites. There's a lab called, um, I think it's called Health Diagnostics. Their um, test is called GI MAP, M-A-P, and that's a, they do all PCR for parasites and fungal species. So I'm really suspicious of parasites or fungal species. I'll go to one of those PCR tests that has a better outcome. They also do um, PCR for H. pylori, which is no longer done by either uh, Genova or doctor's data. So I kind of pick and choose, and if I'm not getting the results I want, I'll go deeper with one of those other tests. I, I know that you eat more of a, a paleo-type diet. Are you getting people on that kind of regimen, getting them off dairy and glutinous grains? What is your kind of dietary philosophy? Ooh, great thing, and I didn't mention that, but that's really essential. Um, typically grain-free, because grains are so highly contaminated with mold toxins that someone who has fears is going to be irritated by those. Corn is the worst. Peanuts are really bad. Cashews, pistachios. So certain nuts and grains are, are quite high. Fermented foods tend to be less tolerated, and that's usually because of the histamine production. Many times, Sears patients have mast cell d uh, disorders or issues with histamine, and because of that, they won't tolerate fermented foods or high histamine foods either. So I still individualize it, but I would say mostly grain-free, whole foods, Always gluten-free, almost always dairy-free, for sure sugar-free. Do you do any food intolerance testing? I do. I do. And to me, that's kind of a, I usually do IgG, like through U.S. Biotech or um, Cyrex, and that's kind of a test for two reasons. If they have massive food issues, taking them out temporarily will help to heal the gut. But also, um, if they have lots of issues with foods, you know they have intestinal permeability. So it's kind of a, a dual test. So... We're, get, we're moving down the line here. So um, I jumping back to when you treat the sinuses, are you using the big spray and with a fungal medicine? How often do you do that? And do you think biofilms are important? So great question. I use um, Microbiology Inc. to do the Marcon's testing, the swab, and it will tell both fungal and bacterial species. So if they have Marcon's, uh, the classic is compounded BEG spray for four weeks and retest. Um, I find that maybe 50% of the time is effective, but a lot of times it's not. So an alternative, if that is ineffective, is to switch to plain EDTA for three months and then retest, and that can sometimes be effective just disrupting the biofilms. Other things I have tried, and I still don't have any data on this, so this is just kind of experimental. I'll explain that to patients, but I've used Argentine silver nasal spray. The difficulty with that is it has to be used four or five times a day, and I can also sometimes will add uh, Xclear, which is a xylitol, nasal spray, and that's a biofilm disruptor. And then citricidal can be effective natural antifungal. Um, you can do a solution like a nasal rinse with a Neomed or a, a neti pot with silver or with um, 
a grapefruit seed extract, or Ar Ar I think it's Argumax, um, which is a dropper that's like a grapefruit seed extract. So those are kind of some of the things, and I really haven't found one thing to be particularly better. Usually what I'll do is if someone fails BEG or doesn't tolerate it, then I'll try the silver or the citricidal or both. How important do you think it is clinically to get the Marcans to, to be negative? I mean, in your opinion. Well, I do see correlations with MSH being low. So MSH drives all the other endocrine disruption. So if the MSH is low, you're going to have disrupted female male hormones, usually high estrogen, low testosterone in both men and women. You'll have disrupted antidiuretic hormones, so that frequent urination and thirst and dysregulation with hydration. You'll have dysregulated thyroid. Sometimes they'll appear hypothyroid symptomatically. Their TSH will be normal. Free T4 will be low. Um, and then the adrenal axis will also be dysregulated. That's usually really high cortisol and insulin resistance. And all of that's related to a low MSH. So if you if you eradicate the Marcans, I think the difficulty, Kirk, is that often the Marcans, I've been seeing more and more cases where it's in an old root canal or a jaw. So you treat the nose, and that's certainly not going to eradicate it or fix the MSH. And I would say there's a lot of patients out there that have had trouble raising that MSH. How did you find it in the jaw? Which, how did you do that yeah. for the root canal? How did you do that? Well, that's typically what I'll start with is I have a couple holistic dentists that I work with. And um, and just so you know, the data shows that someone could have a negative Marcon swab in the nose and still have it in the jaw, and they could have negative in the jaw and still have it in the nose. So it doesn't necessarily correlate if they have a positive swab. Basically, what I'll start with is a holistic dentist can do a, a spiral, or not spiral, a cone CT of the jaw and look for cavitations under old root canals or issues or pockets. And if you see those pockets or cavitations, that's a sign that there's kind of a low-grade old infection. And I initially didn't do a lot with the dental stuff, but what I found is some of these patients weren't getting well, and they turned out to have massive issues in the jaw. So you start with a CT for cavitations, and then the dentist can pull those root canals, or if there's an issue with the cavitation, try to extract that. We know now that Marcans can actually grow in the bone, which is crazy. Yeah, great. All right, thanks for that, Pearl. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, so what are your uh, – do you – do you measure bio for hormone levels and treat bioidentically, or do you treat to try and get the MSH up first before you do that? Um, I do. I treat I treat with um, if they need it. So typically what I'm doing is uh, most of the serious patients have high cortisol, not low. A few of them have low cortisol. So we'll be doing things that like a phosphatidylserine or rhodiola or um, anything to kind of lower, bring down that cortisol level and get them sleeping and get them you know, their body calmed down. Um, with hormones... Um, if it's appropriate to replace testosterone, I do that. I always start with DHEA because that's usually best tolerated and it's less, um, you know, uh, it's a little bit more gentle. Uh, but I have put patients on testosterone. Both men and women who have autoimmune disease, which is very common in seers, benefit from testosterone. And men who have uh, prediabetes or metabolic syndrome also benefit from testosterone. So I'm not afraid to use that at all uh, if necessary. Okay, I know I got to get you out of here because I said a half hour, so we'll we'll tighten this up with. Do you do any um, pre-testing? I started doing the Mocha test. I actually got trained in it to do it, and I find it very valuable. But do you do any kind of testing, or you just watch patients and can tell if their cognitive uh, decline improves? Yeah, the Mocha. I just started doing that as well. So I find that I also see in us vital signs. I just started using them, and I find them to be pretty helpful. And you can just put a patient in front of the computer, and they can do it in your office in twenty thirty minutes. So it's called CNS Vital Signs, and uh, that's been really helpful as well. It's not exactly a mocha, but it's a battery of like, um, you know, acuity memory and then like responsiveness and executive function, kind of all those categories. So in closing, it's pretty 
is it, I'm putting words in your mouth, is it obvious that an Alzheimer's patient could have cognitive decline from mold illness or SIRS, in your opinion? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're I think we're going to see more people. The problem is, as you know, Kirk, before you and I were aware of this, it wasn't even really in our um, in our toolbox. Like before, I had my exposure, I, I kind of knew mold was bad, <laughs> but that's about the extent of it. Now that I'm aware of it, I'm seeing more of it because it's actually out there in a lot of patients. I've even had patients that present with severe Crohn's or colitis. It turns out to be mold was the trigger of the inflammatory bowel disease. So we'll close now, Jill. Um, give people your um, your. Uh, email, not email address, but your website and get on the newsletter list or whatever it is that you want to put out there. You bet. Thank you, Kirk. Um, you can just check out, I've put out blogs, all kinds of free stuff. It's just jillcarnahan.com. And if you want to stay in touch, if you're a professional, I have a newsletter just for doctors. Right up in the uh, upper right-hand corner of my website, it says for professionals only. You can get there and get that link, and you'll get just the latest research. If you're a patient or a client, um, you can just join the regular newsletter, and I just put out all kinds of blogs and recipes and things. Thank you, Kirk, for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Jill. I know how really busy you are, so thanks a lot for taking the time. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today Show. And as usual, uh, there will be links underneath uh, the blog and the podcast to Jill's um, website and for other information. So I'll talk to you soon, and you have a great day.